the History Channel original podcast. Abolitionists were clamoring for Lincoln to do something. They were saying the Confederacy has these black men impressed into military laborers. Free these people. We can use them to help us win the war. Black men had been saying it all along. White men and women started saying it as well. Lincoln still believed that the Constitution made it impossible for the government to emancipate the slaves because Constitution protected property and property was slaves. Lincoln's aware of all of these things. He's being political about it, but he's also being thoughtful about it. From the History Channel, this is Making Lincoln. I'm Andre DeShields. It's the summer of 1862. The Civil War has been raging for over a year, and Lincoln is at a turning point. The leader of his army, General McClellan, has disappointed him. In order to take back the vital naval city of Norfolk, Virginia, Lincoln had to personally assume command. And now, the Confederate forces are energized by the new leadership of General Robert E. Lee. Lincoln realizes that to win this war, he's going to have to make a big move. A move presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin says might be risky. So that's when he begins to think about the fact that I don't have the constitutional power to emancipate the slaves in the Union as president, but maybe as commander-in-chief, I can emancipate the slaves in the South as a military necessity. But Lincoln would have to persuade the cabinet, the army, and the people that the Emancipation Proclamation was the right thing to do. It's a daunting task to convince all of these different factions that freeing the Confederate States enslaved people is their best move. Lincoln sets out to do what he does best. He talks. Here's historian Christy Coleman. Over the summer, Lincoln is talking to people about what will become the Emancipation Proclamation. He's talking to his War Department. He's talking to the State Department. Lincoln thought slavery was wrong. But he's also someone who believed in what he imagined as nuance. Arthur Clint Smith describes Lincoln's initial plan. Free the slaves, but then send them somewhere else. And Lincoln frames this as like, he's like, even if I wanted black people to stay, there is no way that the average white person would ever allow black people to exist without the threat of violence hanging over them at all times. They don't want to live next door to you. They don't want you to vote. They don't want you on their juries. They don't want you to go to school with their kids. They don't want you anywhere near them. And Lincoln said the way to make people feel less physically threatened and socially threatened is to say, after we get rid of slavery, this is going to, again, be a white man's country, and black people are going to go somewhere else, so we won't have to worry about it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Most Northerners are against the Confederacy, but a post-abolition America was still hard for them to picture. 
Here's historian and author Caroline Janney. Keep in mind, the Free North is 99% white. And so there is a palpable fear among white Northerners of slavery being ended. Especially those who felt that they were going to have to compete with black men for the same jobs, for the same housing. Author Edna Green Medford says the tension was just as palpable among black Americans. Now, there were black men and women as well who believed that the two races could not coexist. They're just thinking, I am tired of dealing with this. I want out of this country. But the majority of African-Americans were not at all interested. We sometimes think that by the time of the Civil War, the people who are enslaved are people who were captured in Africa and brought to America. These are Americans. They're not citizens, but they are native-born Americans. And their ancestors had been here, in some instances, before the Mayflower. Then, in August of 1862, the New York Tribune publishes an abolitionist editorial called The Prayer of Twenty Millions. Historian Harold Holzer sums up the impact these words had on Lincoln. It basically says, why, Mr. Lincoln, are you delaying on issuing a proclamation of freedom? So Lincoln did write, I think, the most famous letter to the editor in American history. He said, I want to remind you, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union. If I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I would do that. If I could save the Union by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would do that. Lincoln is, by this time, determined to be a liberator. But congressional elections were coming up. So first, he has set the stage among an exclusively white electorate for emancipation to be accepted. But his cabinet had said, you've got to wait for a Union battlefield victory, or people will think that this is what... William Seward called a last shriek on the retreat. Lincoln wants to act on the Emancipation Proclamation immediately, but his cabinet convinces him to wait. Wait until the Union can claim a victory in battle. That's what will bring the people over to Lincoln's side. Meanwhile, in Virginia, the Confederate Army is wasting no time waiting to see what Lincoln will do next. General Lee's forces are on the move. United States Army War College historian Doug Dowds. From the time he takes command, he will drive Union soldiers back from the gates of Richmond. And now Lee is looking at the spires of Washington, D.C. And then what he will write back to Jefferson Davis is now seems to be the most propitious time since the beginning of this war for this army to enter into Maryland, a change of policy for the Confederacy to now invade the North. Robert E. Lee and his Confederate troops are tantalizingly close to the Capitol. He thinks, if he can play this right, this might be Lincoln and the Union's last stand. General Stanley McChrystal explains Lee's strategy. So the idea is Lee would put pressure on President Lincoln politically, and it might lure the Union army out into a battle in which he could be destroyed. So he's able to maneuver his force to force a battle at a place called Antietam. The Battle of Antietam will unfold on September 17, 1862, on beautiful rolling farmland of Western Maryland. A creek divides the two armies. At dawn, fighting erupts in a large cornfield. 
The fighting that occurred in Miller's cornfield was so severe that the corn stalks were cut all the way down to their bottom. Then the battle shifts to the middle of Lee's line, a sunken road. This is a farm lane, and after wagons going across it, it eroded to become a trench line. Two understrength Confederate brigades will defend that sunken road, and two divisions of the Union Army will attack that sunken road repeatedly. After two and a half hours of fighting, that Confederate line will finally break. But McClellan will commit no more forces to it. The Confederates retreat when they realize that McClellan has deployed only a quarter of his troops. The Union forces vastly outnumber them. When the battle is over, that sunken road is littered with bodies like a mass grave. It's known today as Bloody Lane. Here's Caroline Janney. Antietam's the first battle that will be photographed. The scenes of the sunken road are absolutely heartrending. People can't believe the carnage that has happened from this one battle. Once these images are produced, the reality of war sets in fully. Antietam is horrible. The thing about Antietam, though, that becomes important is that Lincoln needed a win. He's not doing really well in the spring and the summer of 62. Antietam gives him permission to issue the Emancipation Proclamation to the South and change the course of the war. So Antietam was on September 17th. By September 22nd, Lincoln was issuing the proclamation. That preliminary proclamation said you have 100 days to either come back into the Union or I'm going to free your enslaved laborers. The Confederate retreat at Antietam is the cue Lincoln has been waiting for. Now he can issue the Emancipation Proclamation at last. On September 22, 1862, Lincoln finally issues the Emancipation Proclamation. In it, he says, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. Lincoln knows that this grand proclamation will only become a reality if the Union proves that it can win this war. And right now, Lincoln worries that McClellan may be hurting those chances. On October 1st, Lincoln travels out to Antietam, and he has a conference with McClellan. McClellan has asked him to go out and look at the battlefield. And Lincoln is really disgusted that he's showing him all of these wonderful things that happened on the battlefield, and yet this hadn't been a decisive victory. Lincoln is frustrated to realize how many troops McClellan held back the day of the battle. He believes the battle at Antietam could have been the decisive victory. For Lincoln, this seals McClellan's fate. There are elections coming up. McClellan is very popular, not only among his troops, but among Democrats in the North. So Lincoln doesn't want to fire him yet. But the day after the midterm elections, Lincoln will fire McClellan. Many people are outraged at Lincoln's decision. Many are also still reeling from Lincoln's emancipation announcement in September. And between September and January, the blowback was so great that many people thought he might not sign it. To make matters worse, the Republicans lose quite a number of seats in the midterm elections, leaving them with just a slim majority. There are now twice as many conservative Democrats 
and they oppose emancipation. What people in the North feared is that now the South would never come to the bargaining table. This would mean the war would be prolonged forever. Lincoln is set to sign the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. But no one knows if he will actually go through with it. On New Year's Eve, people gather in black communities throughout the North, waiting. There was what we call watch night, where Douglas was with a group of abolitionist friends waiting to see if Lincoln would keep his word. Kenneth Morris, founder of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiative, describes the moment that word comes. Lincoln has signed the Emancipation Proclamation. There was a great celebration that broke out. You know, Douglas was said to have a great baritone singing voice, and I'm sure he was out there singing at the top of his lungs um, in celebration that this document was finally signed. The morning that Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, there'd been a big New Year's reception at the White House, and he had shaken hundreds of hands. So when he went finally to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, his own hand was numb and shaking. He put the pen down. He said, if ever my soul were in an act, it is in this act. But if I sign with a shaking hand, posterity will say he hesitated. So he waited and waited until he could sign with an unusually bold and clear hand. It cannot be overstated how consequential this document was. With the stroke of a pen, Lincoln, through the authority that he has in that moment, frees millions of enslaved people in these Confederate states. Historian Carrie Lattimore says the Emancipation Proclamation fundamentally changes the tenor of the war. Emancipation creates a new ethos for why people fight. Yeah, to keep the Union together. But now it's a freedom fight. That goes back to the founding of our nation. It was about freedom and justice. Later, Lincoln claims that emancipation, not preserving the Union, was the central act of his administration. African-Americans were ecstatic. Even those who took issue with the idea that not everybody got their freedom, they understood that this was the beginning of the end for slavery. Douglas says, if Virginia is free, Maryland can't be enslaved for much longer. You're going to have to end slavery in Kentucky. You're going to have to end it in Delaware and Missouri. Also, the proclamation gave authority to bring black men into the Army and Navy. This is an argument Douglas has made for a long time. Frederick Douglass had been advocating to allow free men and these contraband enslaved men to join the Army. And Lincoln agrees. So it is the Emancipation Proclamation that actually establishes the United States colored troops. Douglas believed that, especially after the proclamation, if you deserved freedom, you needed to fight for freedom. Frederick Douglass didn't just advocate for enlisting black men from Confederate states. He even encouraged his own family in the North to join the fight. When you think about his own sons, Lewis and Charles, who he recruited into the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, that's really putting his money where his mouth is. They were free, but yet they would risk their own freedom and their own lives to go and fight in the Civil War because that's how important that cause was to them. That's how important the cause was to Frederick Douglass. Not surprisingly, arming and training black men does not sit well with the slave-holding South. Many people in the South were furious. 
You know, this is what they feared during the 1860 election. And they thought that it would create slave rebellions across the South. They thought it would create insurrections. They thought that he not only was taking away their property, but putting their lives in danger in a profound way. So once emancipation is one of the twin goals of the war, it must embolden the South to know that we have to win this war unconditionally. The Confederate side is galvanized by a renewed sense of urgency. Historian Barton Myers. So Robert E. Lee once again steals the initiative. He marches for a second time on a raid into the North, through Northern Virginia, across Maryland, into Pennsylvania, and the Union Army of the Potomac is on its heels. The South, says Alan Gelzo, is prepared to win by any means necessary. As Lee's army moved through south-central Pennsylvania, they had no compunction about rounding up any black people they could find in Pennsylvania, shackling them together, and shipping them south to be sold in the slave marts of Richmond. When Robert E. Lee decides to advance into Pennsylvania, another invasion of the North, we are roughly two years into the war. There's hundreds of thousands of dead, and there's really no end in sight. And so what he's trying to do is provide the ultimate evidence to that Northern population that the magnitude of sacrifice for this war is no longer worth it. We see this growing war weariness in the North. That's how Lee refers to it, this growing war weariness. It shows up in the midterm elections where the Republican lose seats in the House of Representatives. How much longer? How much more is this going to cost in lives and dollars? Momentum is on the side of the Confederates. Lincoln needs a new leader, someone capable of defeating Lee once and for all. Lincoln is starting to come into his own as commander-in-chief. He's trying to find someone who would chase after Lee and destroy the army in Northern Virginia. He turns to George Gordon Meade. George Gordon Meade lived in Pennsylvania. He was a battle-hardened veteran of the Army of the Potomac. In June of 1863, Lincoln orders Meade into his first battle as commanding officer. It is in a place called Gettysburg. Union Cavalry will ride into Gettysburg and they'll accomplish the first orders that Lincoln gives Meade, which is find Robert E. Lee. And they do. They find two-thirds of the Confederate Army are down to the west, one-third are off to the north. The next morning on July 1st, Confederates will march down the road from the west. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones will borrow Sergeant Levi Schaefer's carbine rested on a fence rail and at 7.30 in the morning, squeeze off the first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg. 
The first shots at the Battle of Gettysburg have just been fired. Both sides will send in reinforcements, and what starts off as a spark will grow like a wildfire. The Union puts up one heck of a fight and is able to delay the Confederate Army for several hours to allow for the Union to bring up infantry support. Robert E. Lee is going to bring every soldier he possibly can, overwhelm the Union Army of the Potomac, and push them back through the city of Gettysburg. The rest of the day for the Yankees seems like a dramatic defeat. Yankees are running through the, the center of Gettysburg. Some of them are breaking off and hiding in attics and in cellars. Lincoln is in Washington, and he is anxious for what is happening. He knows that fighting is going on. But both of these armies are out beyond the immediate reach of telegraph and railroad. So the only news is fragmentary, bits and pieces that are floating through the newspapers, through couriers. There are wild rumors, complete defeat of the Confederate forces, followed by complete defeat of the Union forces. But nothing entirely clear, nothing entirely certain. He's going to have to wait. He has no choice. During Gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln almost lived in the War Department offices close to the telegraph operators. He was about as closely involved in monitoring the operations of an army in the field as maybe any president had ever been. By the end of the first day of fighting, July 1st, 1863, the Union Army has suffered terrible losses on the battlefield at Gettysburg. On the morning of July 2nd, 1863, Robert E. Lee makes the decision to test both flanks of the Union Army of the Potomac at a place called Little Round Top. Meade attempts to counteract this by sending more troops to the left flank. It's a mistake. And it created a gap in the Union line. This opening creates this existential threat. As word of this reaches Lincoln, another blow lands. Mary Todd has been in an accident. Someone has tampered with their carriage in an attempt on Lincoln's life. Mary is injured. All hell seemed to be breaking loose. Lincoln was faced with the consequences that someone had tampered with the carriage in order to do him in, and his wife had become collateral damage. As much as Lincoln wants to rush to Mary's side, he can't leave the war room. Historian Mary Frances Barry says the stress on Lincoln must have torn him apart. You wonder what Lincoln had to shore him up emotionally and psychologically as he went through all these different decisions he had to make and the crisis that took place. But as Lincoln knows all too well from the death of his son, war doesn't wait for personal tragedies. On the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee would launch his 12,500 men across nearly a mile-wide field, and they would strike the Union position. This comes to be known as Pickett's Charge. It becomes a huge bloodletting. The casualties mount for both Confederate and Union armies as Lee's men are storming the center of the Union line. On and on it went. Confusion. No certain information. On July 3rd, Lincoln stays at the Telegraph office all night, awaiting a report from Gettysburg. Finally, he receives a message from General Meade. The battle has been successfully concluded. Lee's retreating. After Gettysburg, Lincoln is thrilled with Meade. Here we've had the first decisive victory for the Army of the Potomac over Lee's army. 
This is a victory in no uncertain terms. Unlike Antietam, it is clear that the Union Army has won this battle. The patriotism and cheers going in offices. And in Washington, D.C., hardly any work gets done that day. The president gets serenaded at the White House. The idea that if it isn't the end, it is the beginning of the end, this is prevailing throughout the North. Gettysburg has been the largest battle of the war up until that time, will remain the largest battle of the war, somewhere around 50,000 casualties. Lee has lost a third of his army on this venture north, and he has clearly been defeated. But amidst the celebrations of Gettysburg, Lincoln is still waiting for news from another important battle happening in the West. And while the Battle of Gettysburg is going on, Ulysses S. Grant is now laying siege to the Confederate army inside of Vicksburg. Vicksburg was the last portion of the Mississippi River the Confederates still held. The Mississippi River is critically important for the transport of goods, supplies, and troops. Capturing Vicksburg would be momentous. If he can win both battles, Lincoln believes the end of the war could be in sight. That evening, Lincoln gets the news. He learns of the capitulation of Vicksburg the same day as the last Battle of Gettysburg. Lincoln had said early on, Vicksburg is the key. The war can never be brought to a close until that key is in our pocket. Ulysses S. Grant delivered the key to Lincoln. This is a turning point in the war. Vicksburg and Gettysburg, it's the high tide of the Confederacy. Never again would they have that much initiative. Never again would they have that much momentum. Never again would they have that much numbers. The tide turns on July 4, 1863. The Union has won hard victories in Vicksburg and the Gettysburg. Lincoln believes the Confederacy can soon be defeated, at last. But as he continues to learn in this war, nothing will come easy. After Gettysburg, Lee's troops managed to slip away. When he found out that Lee's army had escaped, that was one of the lowest moments of the war because he felt we had victory within our grasp. It was in the hollow of our hands. The war continues to rage. With every moment that passes, Lincoln can feel his dream of a unified nation slipping away. He knows that if he continues on this path, the battles will only be bloodier and more brutal. Is he ready for the sacrifices he'll have to make? That's next time on Making Lincoln. Making Lincoln is a podcast from the History Channel produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer, and Julie Magruder, producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance from James Hansen. Abraham Lincoln was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 